Hello, everyone, and welcome to the first of our bonus episode Conspirituality Podcast Drops. Uh, the main episode podcasts usually run long, and we always have more data than we know what to do with. So we're going to be spacing things out a little for breathing room. And some of these mini episodes will be short and sweet, and others will be more laid back and lengthy. They'll all be hosted by us individually. Today, I've got a deep dive into the demonology of QAnon and Christian evangelicalism with Dublin-based religious studies scholar Jonathan O'Donnell, pronouns they, them. Professor O'Donnell takes me through a tour of modern demons and how they appear and how believers relate to them. They also explore the amazing world of spiritual warfare handbooks, which have a history in U.S. evangelicalism and some overlaps with New Age self-help manuals. You'll hear about the fact that I have a demon story of my own, but it's from my Catholic childhood and somewhat different. Uh, I had the tools at the time to interpret that experience in terms of my internal psychology. And I was able to see that the dream of the vampire was telling me something about my internal self. So it was really amazing to spend time with someone who studies and understands the more paranormal interpretations of demons and how these impact those who have them. This is part of why I think this is a good extra segment to launch our short episodes with. Professor O'Donnell goes slowly here and we cover the issue in depth. And as I remark at the end, it feels really good to let the slow pace of scholarship modulate the speed of the news cycle. I really love good scholarship that way because it always gives me the sense that people are willing to take time with things and understand them with empathy. Professor O'Donnell specializes in American religious and cultural studies with a focus on the religious right and systems of dehumanization. They study Islamophobia, antisemitism, transphobia, and religious nationalism. Their current research analyzes the relation between evangelical demonology, authoritarianism, and post-truth politics in Trump's America. Hello, Jonathan. Welcome to Conspirituality Podcast. Thanks so much for taking the time. Pleasure to be here, Matthew. Um, so what, in a nutshell, if this is possible, is demonology? Mm, okay. Uh, so there's a kind of a narrow and a broad answer to that question. Um, I generally, in my work, define demonology very broadly as discourse about demons, um, wherever it happens to be around. Right. Um, there is, uh, and then we, we can kind of talk in a second about what a demon classifies as in this context. Uh, there is a more narrow definition that treats it very specifically as a school of Christian theology, uh, either very formalized like it was in, say, the Middle Ages, and particularly early modernity, uh, where you had a very kind of rigid formulaic form of, of traditional demonology, or what I study today, which is similar, but much more fluid and much more like less uh, formalized than it used to be. Does that mean that um, the, the, the demons themselves can wander into and out of religious discourses? They can secularize or they can appear in different contexts? Yeah, I mean, very much so. Uh, yeah. I mean, you could look at the entire kind of post-Miltonic post-Milton use of the devil and demons like in as literary figures for that context. Yeah. Uh, like I myself would include that kind of 
in the, the broader cultural discourse of demonology, of like discourses about demons. Right. Uh, this is a point of contention, like many scholars would disagree with me. Right. Um, but I, I, I generally see, uh, this is, I guess this is kind of like the big distinction with demonology, is whether you consider it to be like discourses about specific demons. So say you could trace Lucifer, to use the quintessential example, uh, both in his like traditional theological context, but also this kind of post-theological literary or artistic culture context. Um, or there is the other use of demonology that sometimes gets used where it's specifically just a discourse of othering uh, that is essentially separated from uh, traditional theological discourses of demonology. And this is the way that secular scholars often use the term. Right. Um, well, I can see how, I mean, you know, I've, I've reached out to you and I, I invited you for this, for this interview because, of course, we're going to be talking about demonology as it pertains to QAnon. And I can see how mm. we kind of have uh, almost a, a mixing bowl or a pastiche of all of these themes and usages in, in uh, current culture. Yeah. Very much so. Uh, that's kind of why I don't personally make the distinction quite as rigidly, yeah. uh, because they tend to feed off each other, um, especially when you're dealing with like, like literary pop cultural representations of demons will feed back into more formalized demonologies, particularly uh, on the evangelical right. Um, so I, I think maintaining a rigid distinction while useful in some contexts, like often works to like obscure far more than it illuminates. Right. Well, speaking of evangelicalism, uh, and we'll get to its impact uh, on QAnon land in a bit, but you've, you've done a lot of study on something called the Spiritual Warfare Manual, which, as I take it, is, a, is an influential genre in American evangelicalism. Mm. Um, can you talk generally about what these manuals are, how popular they are, and how influential they might be for today's uh, QAnon digital warriors? Yeah. Um, okay, so there's initially, what a spiritual warfare manual is, is essentially, um, I guess as the name would suggest, it is a manual or a handbook for uh, advising readers on how to uh, participate in spiritual warfare. Hmm. Uh, spiritual warfare being the uh, war against demonic forces in uh, daily life and the world. Right. Uh, specifically in terms of genre, they tend to vary slightly widely. Uh, most of them will be very similar to self-help manuals. Um, they'll be advising people on how to deal with troubles in their daily life, in their work, in their marriages, in their friendships. Um, but by placing the blame for these on uh, demonic entities that have perhaps entered the life of the individual through either a personal sin or sometimes a kind of ancestral sin or familial sin. Right. Um, the genre does kind of vary from this, though. Uh, on the other end of a kind of spectrum, you'll have more conspiratorial or like prophecy manuals that will take that same worldview of demons as the kind of hidden forces behind daily life, uh, but will focus more specifically on politics, uh, on uh, on kind of world affairs, world politics, um, national discourses, uh, broader kind of cultural discourses within a society. Right. Uh, this is often how they overlap with, say, the QAnon manuals. Um, there, is, there are several spiritual warfare manuals written by people involved in QAnon. Uh, Praying Medic has written several. Uh, for example, I think David Hayes is his actual name. Um, other figures like Mark Taylor 
um, started off in spiritual warfare and has kind of become more of a QAnon figure uh, in the last couple of years. But it sounds um, like he had. But it sounds like he had some preparation, some background that the that the manual format actually puts a person into a zone in which they're giving instruction in this landscape. You know, this yeah. is this is how to uh, this is how to overcome. Is, yeah, definitely. And this is kind of one of the specific things with the manuals is they they vary in what they're trying to do. Um, some of them will be a lot of them will be aimed at convincing Christians uh, that demons are real and are like part of everyday life. Right. Um, and generally in terms of how popular they are, uh, I mean, it varies. It's difficult to, there's been no, no data directly on the figures of these manuals, but they are sold generally in like most Christian bookshops, for example. Right. Um, several of them will be. So if you're in a Christian bookstore, there will be at least several spiritual warfare manuals of varying descriptions like on, on offer there. Now, um, now, what kind of, I mean, it, it, it sounds, uh, you can inform me on this, but it sounds just right off the bat that a spiritual warfare manual would be ideally situated for digital warriorship in the sense that, you know, its techniques would be sort of things that you would do at home, um, mm. uh, things how you would organize your internal uh, you know, landscape and hygiene, um, how you would pray and so on. Is, is, am I on the right track there? Yeah, yeah, you're definitely on the right track with that. Uh, yeah. There's a lot of overlap uh, with general self-help discourse. It's very internally focused. Uh, there are other manuals that are more collective. Um, they'll advocate for things like prayer walks, for example, where right. uh, groups of Christians will get together and they'll usually like circumambulate a specific location uh, while reciting prayers, like in a way of, sort of driving out the evil spiritual force that's seen as kind of indwelling. Right. In place uh, but this is this kind of is the division whether you're whether the manuals are focused specifically on demons connected to place and location uh, or institutions or uh, demons mostly related to the individual uh, in the uh, or like family life where the space if there is one will be like the home for example or or your local church that will be right. the space you need to cleanse or guard against is there a point at which the spiritual warfare manual trips over into, you know, uh, actual planned incitement of violence? Because, of course, that's what the analysts are really concerned about with QAnon is is that, uh, you know, what seems for many people to be a viral, racist, anti-Semitic brainworm is actually going to incite large-scale violence. But do the warfare manuals usually stop short of, you know, yeah. armed, armed, uh, warfare armed, and, yeah. Warfare manuals will, the big division that spiritual warfare manuals tend to draw is uh, they borrow this line from, I believe it's from Ephesians, um, the idea that we, we, ward, we battle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers, the forces of this dark world and the spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. Right. Um, so the idea there is that, uh, and the idea that they'll recite is like, oh, we're not about attacking people. Uh, we're about attacking these uh, spiritual forces that kind of lie behind people at institutions, which is why they focus specifically on prayer. Like prayer is a big um, part of that. Um, that said, when they're using this prayer and this political activism to, and the activism that often goes along with it to change institutional policy or um, affect kind of widespread like 
governmental level structures or institutional policies, uh, these end up having severe material ramifications on individuals that are marked as um, in league with demonic powers, either knowingly or unknowingly. Right. Well, it's very interesting that you say that, um, you know, the, the, the target isn't people, uh, because in, I guess, the, couldn't we say the demonology of QAnon, mm. people, people are targeted, but um, they are abstract, they're symbolic, they're, um, they're, they're celebrities. I mean, I don't think, uh, Bill Gates seems to be a person in the world, mm. uh, and certainly to his family he is, and to those he works with, but I mean, in QAnon discourse, he takes on an altogether sort of iconic Status, and I'm wondering, is Bill Gates a demon in in the QAnon mythos? I mean, Bill Gates is a demon, kind of similarly. I mean, I guess not directly, but like, yes. I mean, in a sense, Bill Gates there operates similarly to the way that a lot of evangelical discourses around, say, Hillary Clinton have operated since the the 1990s. Right. Like, obviously, Hillary Clinton like is an actual person who exists in the world and has various political stances that people can either agree or disagree with. Uh, but within right-wing discourse, she kind of adopted this like symbolic role as representative of things like the the changing role of women in public life, um, specifically like uh, forms of kind of feminist activism that were very big in the nineties. Right. Uh, like ideas of political corruption, especially around her connection to to Bill. Um, but like. This is the. I think this is one of the things that I think was missing from maybe some of the discussion around the 2016 election. Is that like, for a lot of conservative discourse, like Hillary Clinton existed more as a symbol than an actual person. Right. And Bill Gates in QAnon discourse, and as well as other figures like George Soros, for example, in a lot of these discourses, kind of operates similarly. Like, yes, these are real people, but they're operating as kind of stand-ins for broader cultural discourses and um, systems, uh, which is not to say that they can't individually be targeted. They like frequently are, like either directly or indirectly. It's also just occurring to me that, that I, I'm wondering if we're now living in uh, an age of spectacle in which we can actually have more, specific, more specifically defined demons and more demons in total than at any other time in history because i mean we we not you know we can just name them mm. off there's gates there's soros there's chrissy Teigen, and there's like the whole raft of mm. you know hollywood personalities that turn into these abstract uh targets about which people have all these fantasies about what they're doing uh on some ethereal plane mm. yeah i mean that's that's actually kind of an interesting point that deals with the the broader issue of spectacle and the broader issue of, yeah. See, it's kind of interesting because a lot of these discussions will, I mean, they might claim that these celebrities are possessed, for example, uh, but right. usually, usually what they'll come up with are narratives in which these individuals are acting as agents of, of literal demonic forces right. um, who exist... Um, like one of the one of the lines from a particular evangelical book that I analyzed uh, is the deeper state, the idea of the the, the state behind the deep state. Oh, this uh, is oh. Right. So there's a, so there's a, there's the regular government, yeah. then there's the deep. So there's regular state, government, is, then there's okay. the deep state, which is like the conspiracy. So that's like that's like Soros and Bill Gates and the kind of conspirators. Right. And there's the deeper state, which is like the actual demons who are 
either direct either communing with the deep state either directly through like narratives of occult rituals right um or like indirectly through like whispering thoughts and the, the other ways that demons are seen to as constructors communicating with people. Does the deeper state have like a place that it meets? Is it is it in three dimensional reality or is no, the, the deeper state is entirely spiritual in okay. this in this construction? Um, like it might intersect with the material like. Demons intersect with the material realm in spiritual warfare discourses through individuals or through places, become kind of uh, emblems of demonic presence in a lot of ways. Um, but like on a technical level, like the deeper state here would exist entirely in a kind of abstract spiritual realm. Um, yeah, I mean... <laughs> it is understood as real. I think that, that's kind of an important point. It's not just like a symbolic realm. Like the... The demonic realm within spiritual warfare is understood like to literally exist and to like interface with like material reality. Now, does it does it require therefore uh, prophets or shamans or interpreters who have who have mystical vision into the deeper state in order to verify that it's there and what it's doing? Um, kind of yes and no. Um, so one of the big discourses uh, regarding um, like. Sort of Pentecostal and charismatic Christianity, since it kind of arose uh, in the early 20th century onwards, um, has been a kind of generalization of notions of prophethood. Uh, and there's a lot of complexity to this, but like on a kind of basic level, uh, the kind of, I guess, traditional or like mainline Christian perspective is that like prophethood is something that existed in the past right. um, and stopped. Like there are no contemporary prophets. Um, within charismatic Christianity, like that's not a tenet. Like prophethood is considered to be present in the contemporary world. Um, so you'll get like a broad range of people who will either claim or be positioned as like prophets who have divine insight um, and, and are like given visions by God. Uh, like Mark Taylor, who I mentioned before, he's kind of big in the QAnon circles these days, uh, wrote a book called The Trump Prophecy, where he was literally given prophetic visions by God that Trump was going to be president and various things that would happen like during the Trump presidency, uh, many of which haven't come true. It's worth noting. Right. The, 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 now, the threshold for, for belief in what Mark Taylor is writing um, amongst his, his followers, uh, does it have to be... Uh, well, we know that Mark Taylor went into a trance state or that he uh, had some kind of peak experience or that he is there. Are there any of the sort of sainthood characteristics that, you know, we would find in, in hagiographies like, you know, they were born in grace and then they, you know, had a they had an alienated teenage life, but then they had an awakening moment. Is that starting to build up too around around um, personality? Like I mean, Taylor, Taylor definitely has like parts of that narrative. Um, not so much the born in grace, but definitely the, like the kind of conversion narrative, like the moment of, of kind of awakening. Um, his, his personal narrative is often tied up with his history as a firefighter that he essentially developed PTSD and then was kind of healed, um, right. by, by divine grace and kind of, and given visions like of, of Trump's uh, election, like as a result of this. Side note, uh, was he injured and was he opiated uh, for pain um, as a firefighter? Uh, Do you know that? I don't know if he was injured, I believe. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if he was opiated. 
Um, although it's yeah. worth noting that the visions that he claims are not related specifically to his injury. Uh, they're more related to his like, narrative of recovery. Um, yeah, yeah, right. Because I'm just thinking of the um, the guy who uh, the the stunt the stunt man who produced uh, Out of Shadows, uh, mm. who who directly connects his uh, spiritual transformation to a time post injury where he was heavily medicated, and I think that's a really interesting mm. uh, kind of yeah. thing to explore. I I, ha, I, ha, I can't remember the exact details of Taylor's account. At the moment. <laughs> there must be um, a lot of details. Yeah, so that's possible, but I, I, I don't know for certain. So right. I'm going to err on the side of caution here. Okay. Um, now, you, you, there's the, in, in one of the essays that we'll, we'll post uh, in the show notes, you cite an eye-popping statistic that 50, I mean, QAnon aside, 54 mm. Americans believe that demons, quote, absolutely, unquote, exist. So what does that mean in everyday practice for people? I think this is kind of an interesting point because um, like the amount of people in America who may believe in demons, like even absolutely believe in demons is not the same as like the number of Americans who are participating in spiritual warfare, for example. Um, Like a lot of people believe, and this kind of gets back to what you mean by demon. Um, Like for a lot of people, demon is just a general word for like an evil spirit. Mm-hmm. Uh, in which case, like, do you believe in demons? Do you believe in evil spirits? That like hang out for quite a few traditions, like not just Protestant Christianity or even Catholic Christianity. Um, a lot of those people, like, like a lot of New Age people, believe in malevolent spirits, for example. Um, so, in terms of everyday practice, like, it might not impact like as broadly as you might think. Um, like a general belief that like malevolent spiritual forces exist in the world, like, like doesn't necessarily have a direct impact on how you live your life on a day-to-day level. Right. So, um, so, so even that like absolutely might in absolute belief is yeah. really still going to be further nuanced by, you know, do you yeah. have, do you have regular nightmares or do you have, um, you know, are there, are, are there instructions that you feel that you receive versus uh, do you have a general sense of malaise that uh, forces beyond your yeah. control or causing harm? Pretty much. Right. Um, so I, I think it is, diff- it is important to like nuance that perspective because there are a lot of different views that can stem from like a belief in demons. Yeah. Um, um, now in your, um, in your, in your study of all of this, uh, is the basic Jungian perspective that the, 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 the demon as an internal experience or as a symbol uh, is actually part of the unreconciled or unintegrated self. Does that ever come up? Because when I try to really connect with this personally, mm. um, I'm, you know, I'm ex-Catholic and, um, you know, I, I think about this, this very powerful dream I once had of being in church and, uh, tr- and having this cold wind blow through the church uh, and it was packed and uh, I turned around and I realized that um, this very ominous figure uh, cloaked in black was stalking up the center aisle uh, and he was glaring at everybody and I understood that he was vampiric uh, mm. and, that, and that just by looking at somebody, he was 
um, going to infect them. And I could feel this terror that, you know, the effect of his gaze was going to sweep up to me. But as he passed me, I realized, oh, he he kind of looks like me. And, and I also had, you know, a high school teacher at that point who, who, you know, gave me his dream interpretation on, on Jungian lines. But is that whole sort of capacity to um, analyze these, these, these feelings and these sensations, these premonitions as being parts of the self, is that just off the table uh, in, in the demonology that you study? I'd say like yes and no. And like a lot of that has to do with the way that sin is constructed in right. these narratives. Um, so there's one of the common aspects of spiritual warfare discourse is that demons gain access like to people and places through sin. Uh, and like okay. sin can be wild, can vary wildly in what it is. It can be anything from, um, histories of substance abuse to I quote unquote idolatry, which is essentially like practicing any form of non evangelical Christianity um, to sinful thoughts, you know, the traditional sins of like pride or lust or wrath, for example. Um, So there will be this element of like internal, like construction and internal narrative that will be about like identifying and healing, healing from, whatever you've identified as the sins that are, like permit the, the demon access to you. Right. Uh, but the demon itself will always be externalized. It is a separate entity that exists outside of the individual um, and is just gaining access to the individual like through um, like a, a flaw in, in, in the person's spiritual life. It, it brings up something that I haven't thought about before with regard to QAnon is that there's such a fixation upon the innocence of the devotee. Um, mm. I actually haven't heard any QAnon language around, well, we brought this on ourselves or, mm. uh, or God is punishing us or, you know, once we, once we purify ourselves, the cabal will be uh, destroyed or everybody will be released. Uh, Q, Q himself in the drops doesn't, doesn't seem to advocate for any kind of like, you know, personal spiritual renewal. I might be mistaken about that, but, but what's your take on that? Yeah, that kind of ties into, I, I guess I can, would consider it an extension of, of the externalization of demonic forces. Uh, but also part of the way that in terms of the, the broad range of spiritual warfare discourse and language and, uh, and the manuals themselves, uh, QAnon discourse falls very, very concertedly on the end that's closer to like general conspiracist discourse uh, general kind of prophecy writing about uh, like evil malevolent forces ushering in the end times right. and far less uh, on the kind of more self-help end of the spiritual warfare spectrum, which tends to be much more like individual and personalized uh, and like about like cleansing the individual or the family or your immediate environment. Right. Uh, QAnon is very much focused on the on the area that's far more about world systems, like national cultural discourses. Um, yeah. And like politics in its kind of capital P. Well, I guess, and I guess the body politic too, because I mean, there is the, one of, I think one of the attractions of, um, 
uh, QAnon to wellness influencers is the notion of purification and, mm. uh, you know, vibrating more highly, whatever that means or, or however mm. it works out. But, um, you know, it really does seem like the shared body of the QAnon devotees is uh, something that's to be politically purified, um, also morally purified, but but there's never any sense. I mean, this is kind of a clue, I think, psychologically. There's never any sense that, um, you know, the, the devotee has to take uh, some kind of ownership uh, over the 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 state of the world. Um, there's they 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 really they really uh, seem to speak as though they are uniformly oppressed. Yeah, I mean, and that ties broadly into like evangelical discourses of like the righteous remnant, the idea that they are separate from, uh, but in the world. Right. Um, this idea of separation that needs to be both. Um, like constructed, but also constantly enforced. Like the idea that you are separate from the world is not simply a statement, it's an act of being, uh, an act of big being in the world. Right. Uh, and QAnon very much like builds on that narrative of like the innocence of the in-group and the malevolence of the out-group, uh, which ties into the general, like I guess more popular or secular uses of demonology, like as, as the construction, the rigid construction of out-groups that are irredeemably other right uh, and therefore either need to be um eliminated or expelled depending on like the particular territorial metaphor you're working with right and they um, can be yeah and they can be so close to home i'm just thinking of trump coming down his golden elevator and talking about mexicans being rapists and murderers when it's mainly mexicans working in the hotel that polished the fucking golden elevator is so it's it's it, there's no space between you know who the person is involved with and what they're trying to dispel it seems yeah i mean the, the issue here is that like the the forms of of demonization um here both literal and metaphoric yeah uh, that run through discourses like QAnon but also the kind of the QAnon adjacent evangelical right over the last few years have fallen generally along existing um, divisions within U.S. society along lines of like immigration and citizenship, like racial divides, um, gender and sexuality. Right. Uh, So they're spiritualizing in a lot of ways like existing political divisions within America. And like right. raising these to a kind of cosmic level. Uh, oh, Islamophobia would be the other huge one, but that, that is kind of, yeah. Speaking of uh, marginalization and the impacts of QAnon, you identify as non-binary. And I imagine that this has been influential in your scholarly interests. Um, from my limited cis understanding, I, I wonder whether this is this often misunderstood and targeted and othered identity uh, gives a certain felt sense of what it means for a dominant culture to need and to fantasize about demons. Uh, is this something that you can speak to? Oh, absolutely. So there's kind of like a number of levels that operate here. Um, there's the level of embodied research in which it is important to recognize that no, no research is ever produced from a neutral standpoint. Um, the kind of classic 
uh, principle of feminist epistemology. So my research into demonology, and particularly into evangelical demonology, um, stems specifically from the fact that I am in many ways a living embodiment of the discourses of the demonologies that they are constructing. I am with demons in the sense of both affliction and affiliation uh, from these people's view. Uh, and this kind of has generally had a pretty broad impact on my research and the way that I view um, both the demonology itself, but also its intersections with broader cultural society and the way that these divisions like fall along existing uh, fault lines. So you're dealing with the kind of, I mean, recently we've had a lot of discourse and a lot of um, demonization, both literal and figurative, of trans and non-binary people, um, yes. gender non-conforming people broadly, uh, queer people generally, especially in the context of QAnon and the way that it plays into uh, like very, very old tropes about protecting children from threatening uh, deviant others, uh, most of which historically have been aligned with sexual and gender minorities, um, also foreigners, but right. that overlaps with the demonizing construction of, of the foreigner as the bringer of kind of alien or strange cultural and sexual habits that often falls in, in with this. Right. Well, well, and then it seems to reach um, a kind of peak escalation with the construction in QAnon fantasy land of Michelle Obama as actually being male as well as demonic uh, and, you know, involved in uh, ritual sacrifice. It seems like there's, I, I don't think there would be an end point to, to the absurdity or, or that there can be. And maybe that's the point of othering is that it's to continually push the boundary of, of, of unacceptability farther and farther so that you never really have to look at um, hmm. the, the person in front of you. Definitely. Although I, I'd also point out there that I think is really important that the specific construction of Michelle Obama yeah. I specifically also related very intimately to the history of anti-blackness in America yeah, right. and the construction of black women specifically as unfeminine. Right. Um, which then like very much, and the general construction of femininity and masculinity broadly as it falls along racial lines. Right. Uh, in America. It's amazing stuff. Um, well, just a few more questions. Um, you know, uh, at, at a recent Save the Children event in Hollywood, um, there was a group of evangelical Christians who broke out into full-on speaking in tongues. Um, and I found that fascinating. Um, basic question first, how do evangelicals distinguish speaking in tongues as a form of, you know, inspiration or channeling from demonic possession? How do they know that they're in the spirit? I mean, to a significant extent, it's internal. Um, I've never spoken in tongues, so I can't comment right. uh, on, on how that feels. Um, however, it's worth noting here that there is a lot of discourse within spiritual warfare manuals generally of the distinction between not just speaking in tongues, but kind of charismatic inspiration broadly and right. witchcraft. Um, and often the division is drawn along lines of what is God's will or what is seen as God's will. Um, are, you, are you operating in the spirit or are you operating like with another spirit? 
Right. Uh, but how those get identified varies quite wildly and often falls along lines of sometimes of institutional power hierarchies. Like if like there is a pastor, for example, and a congregant um, starts speaking in tongues, but ends up speaking a message that is considered not amenable to the pastor's authority <laughs> or whatever it happens to be like right. some you know what how how do you police that boundary like it's very easy for someone in the position of institutional power to be like this person was not praying in the spirit they were praying with the spirit of witchcraft wow right and, dry, and you know then ultimately push them out of the church um and so they were, so they're walking like, a very. You, you see this narrative actually quite cover, crop up quite frequently in some spiritual warfare manuals, but the actual content of the people who are being accused of speaking in a spirit of witchcraft is very rarely repeated in these texts. Right. You're just kind of expected to take it like on faith from right. the individual uh, that this was an, an ungodly message of some description, but exactly how, who knows. Um, so, there, so there's something very um, energizing and appealing and, uh, and, and sort of peak experience-y about speaking in tongues, but the person who does it really has to walk a fine line because um, mm. it's, it's, it's uncertain how, how they're going to be understood. Yeah, right. pretty much. Um, this kind of talks to the, the general issue with a lot of charismatic and Pentecostal Christianity and is in fact why a lot of Christians who are, like maybe not a lot, but a substantial number of Christians who are not parts of those modes of Christianity often accuse them of being demonically possessed or practicing witchcraft or sorcery of some description. And there's a lot of boundary policing that goes on both within evangelical Christianity broadly between these modes, uh, but also within these uh, modes of Christianity itself in terms of how do you decide what is witchcraft and what is is charismatic practice? Um, right. There's a lot of attention paid to to the boundaries of that, uh, and a lot of policing that goes on around that. Right. You know, um, the one I don't have experience with speaking in tongues either, um, except uh, when um, you know, with my young children, there's um, you know, sort of jazzy, uh, goofy talk, um, which has, carries a cult quality of that, right? Mm. Um, especially if there's a lot of, a lot of laughter or a lot of emoting around it. But, um, I did study, uh, Jyotish or, um, East Indian astrology for a number of years. And, uh, the teacher that I had, um, would assign mantras for us to recite. And there were, you know, there were a lot like mm. for the, for the sun mantra, you, you, you would do 40,000 repetitions until, um, you gained a certain type of familiarity with the meanings of, and the principles of the sun and its movements and so on. Um, but, uh, the, the ultimate goal was something called, uh, Vox City in Sanskrit, which is the, the mm. gift of transcendent speech. And the principle actually was if you had, if you had purified yourself enough through prayer, especially by using your voice to praise a particular force or, or deity, mm. that anything that came out of your mouth would be true. 
okay. you, you, whatever, whatever you, you just, I mean, very, very bad for, um, you know, fact-based discourse, but pretty kind of interesting, uh, with regard to a person's self-conception of, of being authentic, right? Like you mm. could do a spiritual practice that allowed you to just open your mouth and, trust that whatever came out was was useful and true and um, productive and inspired <laughs> um, does 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 um, so do, does is there anything like that uh, going on in in speaking in tongues as well I mean there is definitely the element of this idea that you are full of the spirit like yeah. the spirit of the spirit of the Lord has kind of descended upon you and you are speaking um you're speaking truth kind of with a capital t uh in its kind of cosmic sense like within that state right so like that is similar but like exactly like like the like there's a certain element to which the yeah there's it's less kind of practice-based, I guess, in that context. Like, there's less sense of, like, you perform these specific rituals or ways of speaking, and, like, you get to a state where this occurs. It's more like, it kind of ties into narratives of grace, the idea that grace is this kind of gift. Yeah, I guess Uh, it's very Protestant, right? Where you're not going to have to work, you shouldn't have to work so hard on 40,000 mantras. That's kind of delusional, Mm. actually, when God is all around you and, you know, everybody has access. Yeah. This ties in, sometimes there's kind of, it's kind of interesting when this sometimes goes around, like, narratives of kind of institutional power in, in these movements, because... Sometimes it will come out that a particular charismatic preacher was maybe not quite as as holy as you know was depicted in in the uh, public persona, um, and there's a lot of debate about whether this invalidates or complicates like the messages they gave, kind of maybe while channeling the spirit, like right. and like where, where, and basically like which side of the divide about whether the, it's all fine because it was God speaking through them and whether they were like an unworthy individual is essentially immaterial to this kind of act of, of divine grace that is for both for that individual, but also for the believers generally, um, or whether this is kind of seen as a, as an invalidating event, like varies depending on who you read and who you ask. Right. Well, two last questions that kind of like push at the boundaries of religious studies, I think at this point, um, but I think you're, you're, you're well, you're well suited to look at them. Um, you know, QAnon has leapt out of the chans uh, on the power of memes. And um, I, I, you know, as I was reading your work and, and thinking about this interview, I was, I, I wanted to ask you whether uh, you saw an overlap between the meme as an instantly uh, recognizable and potent communicator of meaning and uh, the traditional religious icon. I mean, that's a really, really interesting question um, because they definitely operate similarly in some description. Um, I mean, as we've kind of seen this particularly over the last few years, but you think of the rise of the alt-right, like previous to QAnon, this like co-option of specific images right. uh, to convey specific like covert and overt like ideological messages. 
um, as as collective symbols of identity and like communal belonging. Right. Um, I'd say it's kind of interesting in that. Like it, it depends on a lot of what, what you mean by objects of ritual power, essentially. Right. Um, so there is, on the one hand, there is a sense in which certain memes are imbued with with spiritual power, um, are imbued with conveying specific ideological messages, either covertly or overtly. Uh, but there's also the sense of kind of communal effervescence, you might call it, you know, to use a Dekheimian phrase. Right. Uh, or, or just general communal belonging. The idea that, um, and this is kind of, this kind of ties into the broader politics of like dog whistle, image, the way that memes often operate as dog whistles. Right. Uh, not just within Q, but also kind of within online discourse broadly. Um, and this sense uh, of religion as community and of religion as communal belonging, like uh, this idea that these memes are operating as maybe not points of devotion per se, but right. points of, of continuity and connection between people uh, that bind them into something that is larger um, than the individual. Yeah, that's an amazing way of looking at it. I mean, um, just going back to referencing my, my ex-Catholicism, I'm thinking about how the iconography that I grew up with in, you know, uh, mid-century Toronto was both instantly recognizable, um, but also quite different and culturally nuanced when I would go to Europe or to, you know, Mexico mm. or, or what have you. And, and I, I'm getting this, this feeling that, um, the memes of, of QAnon are going to have, um, both a unifying quality transglobal, transglobally, but also, uh, they're going to, um, uh, they're, they're, they're also going to absorb, you know, local meanings and local aesthetics and, and, and local mysteries really. Mm. Yeah, no, very much so. Uh, and that ties yeah. actually back into spiritual warfare broadly, just as a brief point, like spiritual warfare as a movement is global, but it's also very localized. It's often very focused on specific regional cosmologies and mythologies and folklore or architecture, like in specific places. Um, right. I focus on it primarily like within the United States in my research, but um, it often adopts a very local flavor. Right. Um, and I see QAnon like as an outgrowth or adjacent to that broader movement, um, like will adopt a very similar framing, I think. Right. Okay, well, last last sort of religious studies uh, boundary question. Um, you know, if QAnon is a religion, as a number of scholars have started to point out, um, but it's also gamified in the sense that participants are given jobs to do, um, you know, they can interpret the scriptures, they can become uh, prophets themselves, they can become seers, uh, they can become digital warriors. Is there any religious history precedent for this? I mean... I don't know of any, like, personally, um, right. any specific, like, history of gamified. Um, I personally would push back against the idea that QAnon is a religion. Okay. Uh, I would say that it was religious. Okay. Um, but I see, it, I see it in a lot of ways as, like, an outgrowth of existing trends within, like, American religiosity that is primarily either Christian or influenced by Christianity in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. um, Although QAnon is kind of broader than that, so it's not right. just Christian. Uh, but 
I, I would not identify QAnon specifically as something that is separate from other religions in America. Right, uh, but it's certainly, it's, it's certainly um, uh, what do you say, combinatory or, or it's, it's a master appropriator. There is a distinct syncretic element. Right, right. It's imperialistic um, in a way. Also, also, hmm? It's imperialistic in a way. It's, 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 it's absorptive. That's kind of often how spiritual warfare, this is kind of why I see it as an overlap with spiritual warfare broadly in the, um, like spiritual warfare is also like that. It goes through its missionary discourses. It goes to local cultures. It goes to spaces. It absorbs local elements into itself and it subordinates them to its like overarching demonologies. Right. Um, but like it uses in that imperialistic way, it extracts intellectual and sometimes material, often material resources from places uh, as a way of feeding itself. Right. Um, the gamified element, though, like beyond religion, I think is very central to QAnon and I think ties into the broader way that it's interfaced with like online culture. Right. Uh, specifically, like I, specifically around ideas of fandom and ideas of like alternate reality games or augmented reality games the ARG universe. Right. I mean, I think this is kind of central to why it exploded on the Chan boards and other and places like that, places where these were um, very common forms of discourse that were occurring, like in these kinds of spaces. Right. Um, it, its general participatory element is, I think, incredibly crucial to its success or to the explosion that QAnon has kind of gone through. Um, and in a way, like, like although the the direct gamified elements are not necessarily replicated in like broader religious discourses that I'm aware of, um, like a lot of particularly like spiritual warfare discourses like are very participatory. They're all about the individual um, participating either individually or more often collectively, like within this kind of broader narrative of cosmic war that is occurring wow. like around you. Right, and like QAnon very much like feeds off that, but I think is also very much geared around um, the specific configurations of online communities that have developed like in over the last decade. say. right. Well, you know, I, I, I said that that was the last question, but, but now something's in my brain that's a little bit more personal and, and um, maybe it's a bit of a confession as well. As I'm listening to you, I'm thinking of how um, relieving it is to engage with uh, a scholarly view, but I think it's also relieving because it gives me, or I think it's relieving in part because it gives me a sense that, you know, history is long um, and things unfold in time and they can be understood over time. And, um, but I also know that, um, I also know that there's like really day-to-day stressful and and horrifying aspects to what we're discussing and and so i'm wondering so first of all thank you for uh, for letting me relax a little bit into uh, this <laughs> um but i guess i guess my personal question is um how do you do you have to personally struggle with um uh the the tension or the stress of the material that you that you cover uh, versus versus the the adoption of you know this kind of long view uh, perspective. 
Yeah, I mean, there, there's a lot of tension that goes into my work. Like both the uh, material itself is often incredibly stressful and incredibly unpleasant to read. Yeah, right. Um, to a point where like sometimes I become somewhat inured to it. And this is one reason I like to discuss the work with other people uh, because there'll be points where I'll just, I'll just bring up something and someone will be, wow, that's, that's really, really horrific. Um, but I've seen, I've seen it so much in so many books that it, its horror has kind of been like recognized, but somewhat lessened in my, in my worldview. Right, uh, but also just having having a longer view, like it does help with contextualizing some of these crises as these emerge, right? Um, within broader histories, uh, right. but that can also be incredibly um, not relieving in the sense that these are these can sometimes manifest as like reiterations or repetitions of existing discourses and problems and like narratives of crisis around identity and power um, that have been playing out for decades, right. even centuries, but right. at least decades. Um, in that sense that like, like n- no, nothing may be new under the sun, but that's not always good. <laughs> <laughs> right. Like, right. Exactly. <laughs> Yeah. Um, it, what's the top thing that you do to take care of yourself? Uh, I draw. Um, I play video games occasionally. Oh. Um, I watch movies. Um, I go for walks in nature. Nice. Um, like, I, I do lots of things that are like self-care practices because yeah. with this material, you do need to step away and have other spaces. Um I tend to do things that don't involve me being at my computer um, <laughs> because, because my computer is um, like a space I use for work and occasionally increasingly in the pandemic for relaxation. Right. Um, but when I like need a, a serious break and some self care, like uh, I'll do other things that are not, not digitally mediated. Right. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Conspirituality. You can find show notes, resources, and more at conspirituality.net. And stay in touch with us on Instagram at conspiritualitypod, on Facebook at conspiritualitypodcast, and at the same extension on YouTube as well. You can also support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash conspirituality, where you will get access to weekly patron-only content. And we would truly appreciate your support if you're able to help. All music you hear on Conspirituality is by Earthrise Sound System, which is the partnership of David Duke Mushroom Shomer and myself, Derek Barris. See you next week, everyone.